0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kristen Gamboa, a managing director in the same group. Hi, Gary. Today, we're exploring Notice 2023-55, in which the IRS, in a surprise move, provided taxpayers temporary relief with respect to the foreign tax creditability requirements of Sections 901 and 903. Very generally, the notice permits taxpayers to rely on the FTC regulations that existed before the 22 final FTC regs for tax years any on or before December 31st, 2023, with certain modifications. We'll discuss several practical implications of the notice, including which foreign taxes may have been or may have not been affected by the notice. Also, we'll inquire into what could have motivated the government to issue this notice today, over a year and a half since finalizing the final regs. Finally, we're going to ask whether the relief offered by this notice represents a mere respite, or is it evidence that the government, like Cher, would like to turn back time to take back those words that have hurt taxpayers? For this discussion, we're joined by Seth Green and Quinn Wynn, both principals in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice and friends of the podcast. Hello, Seth and Quinn.
1: Hey Gary, great to be
2: here. Hey Gary, hey Kristen, great to be here. So before jumping into the notice, it may be helpful to start with some history of the foreign tax credit regulations at issue, just to understand how we got here and what the notice is trying to accomplish. In September of 2020, the government issued proposed regulations intending to modify the creditability requirements for foreign income and withholding taxes. These proposed regs were ultimately finalized and published in the Federal Register in January of 2022. Since their introduction, these regs have significantly changed the creditability requirements from those included in the prior regs. And while the prior regs only allowed a credit for foreign taxes that were either imposed on net income in the U.S. sense, or were, like many withholding taxes, imposed in lieu of net income taxes, They relied on fairly subjective criteria in making these determinations. But Treasury was concerned that the purpose of the FTCs, which was to mitigate double taxation of income, was being undercut by the proliferation of extraterritorial taxes in many foreign jurisdictions in the aftermath of the OECD BEPS Action Plan of 2015. And many taxpayers were able to argue that such taxes did satisfy the more subjective creditability criteria. So to address this problem, Treasury proposed stricter criteria for creditability in the 2020 proposed regulations, which were eventually finalized with some changes. So before talking about what relief the notice provides, Seth, can you explain at a high level what the 2022 final regs did regarding creditability And why the regulations, although intending to be more administrable, actually caused some confusion among taxpayers as to the creditability of foreign taxes.
1: Sure, thanks Kristen. So as you said, old law was somewhat subjective. The phrase used in the old pre-2020 regs was that a tax had to be an income tax in its predominant character. There were requirements there regarding realization, gross receipts, and, and reaching that income which largely are mirrored in the new final regs, the 2022 regs. But under the old regs, it was a predominant character test. So as long as you were close enough, which wasn't particularly defined, what was close enough, but as long as you were close enough on those three requirements of realization, gross receipts and net income, you were an income tax. The new regs kept that framework with an addition or two that we'll get to. They kept that framework but they became a bit more mechanical, maybe a lot more mechanical, especially in the first instance as relates to cost recovery. They focused on per se significant expenses and said you had to recover those expenses, the implication being you had to recover all of those expenses. There's some outs there that have been there since the beginning, and that have also been adjusted by the technical correction and, and proposed regs to you know, say that if there is an exception, that if a deduction is disallowed for to prevent base erosion or profit shifting, again, a, a nod to the OECD, or whether a deduction is disallowed for a public policy reason, that maybe it's okay, and then also In the proposed regs, a little bit of a de minimis test, although the de minimis test is a lot narrower than you might think, because it seems to apply only where kind of a fraction of deductions, a mechanical fraction of deductions are are disallowed. We got these things, but the structure of the regs, and, and the reason that they, in my view, are not more administrable than the old regs, is that you appear to need to know literally every deduction disallowance that arises under a given foreign tax regime. Not most, not the important ones, all of them, because you are looking for a potential disallowance that falls within one of these significant categories and which is not phrased as a kind of haircut a percentage and which can't necessarily be tied to base erosion or profit shifting or a public policy such as we see in the Internal Revenue Code. So how do you prove the negative that no such disallowance exists under foreign law? I don't know how you prove that negative. And and so that is a troubling aspect of the final regs. and, And I think the government has gotten that criticism They've attempted to respond to it, again, through the technical corrections and and through the proposed regs, but I think they are maybe beginning to recognize that the very structure of these regulations makes the need to have an encyclopedic, complete knowledge of each foreign tax regime you're analyzing, that 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 is required under this structure, and maybe that's not what they should be requiring. So that's one really important piece of the background here. The other important piece of the background and which they're backing off of for now, but they did some saber rattling around DSTs was the brand new attribution rule that was introduced in these new final regs. Basically, an attempt to create a jurisdictional nexus between the taxing jurisdiction and the income that is being taxed They're trying to create that nexus in line with how the U.S. taxes foreign persons on what the U.S. believes to be income with a U.S. nexus. But we're discovering that even beyond, you know, quote unquote, extraterritorial taxes or DSTs, the rest of the world doesn't necessarily line up with the U.S. in their thought of what nexus looks like. The most obvious one, which again, the government has attempted to react to, is the sourcing of royalties. Is it sourced based on where the IP is used, or is it sourced based on the residence of the payor? There's also just a whole lot of ambiguity in the case of territorial or quasi-territorial tax systems. The regs, Basically, create a bright line distinction in a number of ways between the taxation of residents of a jurisdiction and non residents. But they define residents to be people who are taxed on the basis of their residence. That is the nexus on which the taxing authority stands. And there are a lot of jurisdictions that, by and large, don't care about residents, they tax everyone. Almost exactly the same, regardless of where an individual lives or an entity is formed. But then you start finding these little quirks that maybe aren't entirely residence agnostic. And those rules don't fit in well with these final regs where where we get those things that don't line up with the U.S. paradigm. So that's, I think, how we got where we are.
2: That's helpful background. I think it's interesting because the government finalized the 2020 proposed regs without receiving many comments. As you just described, these regulations made significant changes to the creditability requirements. So it seems surprising that more taxpayers didn't submit comments on these proposed regs. Any thought as to why that was?
1: I think there are a few reasons. One reason is if you go back to 2020, we were dealing with sort of an overload of new law. You know, we had just gotten a whole bunch of expense allocation rules. We had been dealing with the 904 basketing rules that were new and changed and the branch basket. So not, I mean, and all sorts of other stuff coming out of TCJA, but even particularly in the foreign tax credit world, there was already a bit of overload. And and over and above that, by the time we got the 2020 proposed regs, Pillar 2 was kind of moving along and pillar one not just pillar two but also pillar one and in in particular trying to get a global resolution on dsts which were largely a focus of these proposed regs so i think people were sort of hoping or expecting that maybe this stuff would move on a somewhat slower track and really be coordinated with global developments and it wasn't really going to be quite what it looked like which was the u.s asserting that u.s notions of what is A tax regime were the definition of what is a tax, but that's not what happened. Rather, they did go forward in this precise way where the the U.S. baseline formed the yardstick against which other taxes were tested for creditability. And as I said, you know, the more you look, the more you realize that yardstick doesn't measure what we think it's measuring necessarily.
2: That's helpful. So let's move to the notice. As you highlighted, the requirements for the creditability of net income taxes especially saw a lot of changes under the 2022 regulations. So let's first start with what this notice means for foreign income taxes that U.S. taxpayers may be looking to seek credit for in the U.S. during the relief period. How does the notice deal with the net income requirements during the relief period provided by the notice?
1: Well, so as to the definition of what is a net income tax, they largely just say, go read 901-2A as it existed prior to the adoption of the 2022 final reg. So that's throwing us back to the status quo ante, whatever it was on, I forgot the date in January, but you know, at the end of 2021, whatever it was at the end of 2021, that's what it is until this notice period expires. They did make one very targeted change in this context where, in the context of determining whether a tax came close enough to reaching net income under 901-2A, there was a reference to whether something might be a non-confiscatory gross basis tax. And they apparently had the concern that some DSTs could be read to have fit within that exception of the pre-2022 regulations. Personally, don't think a lot of people were taking that view, but I guess it was conceivable. So they went out of their way to redraft that section and tell us that when we're otherwise applying 91-2C, we have to substitute a few words that will tell us, no, really, these gross basis DSTs are not okay. But so putting aside DSTs, where we are is if you had a tax that you're comfortable was creditable pre 2022, it's creditable until this notice expires. If you had a tax that pre 2022 you were pretty sure was non-creditable, well then you ought to be pretty sure it's still non-creditable. If you have a tax where either you know you'd never paid it pre 22 or it hadn't been significant, so you hadn't really dug in on it, or maybe it's some tax that was adopted after 2021 then you're going to have to go back and look at it and measure it against old law. You can't just rely on what you used to be doing. But to the extent you have a comfortable position that you were taking eyes open pre-2022, that's where we are again, again, as to net income taxes.
2: So that answers the question with respect to net income taxes. But what about in lieu of taxes, such as withholding taxes? Are we back to where we were before the 2022 final regs, or are we somewhere else?
1: There were somewhere else, to be honest. I don't know that it's gonna be tremendously significant for a lot of taxpayers, but we are somewhere else. Pre-2022, the 903 regs of governing in lieu of taxes pretty much just required that there was a substitution, that the withholding tax applied in substitution for the generally imposed net income tax. There was also a requirement that there be a generally imposed net income tax, which is carried forward. The final regulations, the 2022 final regulations, which continue to apply in this regard, added to that substitution requirement that you can't be subject to the generally imposed net income tax and the withholding tax on the same income they added to that a connectivity requirement. They call it the close connection test is one half of it, that, that you can prove that in adopting this withholding tax or this in lieu of tax, it doesn't have to be a withholding tax to be an in lieu of tax, but that in adopting this in lieu of tax, the foreign jurisdiction kind of thought about the trade-offs between the withholding tax and the generally imposed net income tax, and consciously chose to apply the one instead of the other. The old regs were actually quite clear that, you know, proving out any sort of subjective intent was not an element of the old regs. The new regs, though, have an alternative test that you can avoid this um, subjective determination if the tax is a quote-unquote covered withholding tax and a covered withholding tax is as it sounds a withholding tax although not necessarily in the sense we normally think of one the the reference is to the 901k rules on non-creditability of certain withholding taxes and there if you read the rules carefully it's really just that it is a tax on the basis of gross income a tax imposed on a non-resident on the basis of gross income that is a covered withholding tax and so if you have such a thing and you have non-duplication then you don't have to go about proving the close connection test you can just say it is a tax on gross income imposed on non-residents there is no duplication therefore creditable what the 2022 final regulations originally had but which has been withdrawn here is They had the attribution. The nexus requirement was also part of the 903 test, and that part of the 903 test has been suspended along with all of the rules that we've talked about for the net income taxes.
2: Thanks. So the notice clearly provides relief, as you just described, but it's pretty clear that the relief that's provided is only temporary. How long does the notice currently say that taxpayers can rely on it? Right now,
1: it says you can rely on it for tax years ending on or before December 31st, 2023. So for calendar year taxpayers, that means you can rely on it through the end of this taxable year. For fiscal year taxpayers, depending on what your fiscal year is, you may already be in a year that extends beyond the application of this notice. Calendar year taxpayers also have to be mindful that some of these things are applying at the CFC level. For your CFCs, you may bump up against the expiration of this notice sooner than you thought. And we'll talk later about whether
0: this notice could be extended later in this podcast episode. But thanks, Seth. That's really helpful background. Now, moving into the practical implications of the notice, Quinn, what are some of the issues that clients are dealing with and interpreting the notice
3: thanks gary i think as seth had indicated you know a lot of taxpayers when they were analyzing the credibility of foreign taxes under the new final regulations that were issued in 2021 we were discovering of course that a lot of withholding taxes for example the taxes the withholding taxes for royalties or services and in some cases of course the corporate income tax that's applied to resident companies that they were not creditable under this new standard. And uh, for a lot of taxpayers, what they're dealing with now as a result of the notice, and in particular, as a result of the timing as to when this notice came out, is going back and reevaluating, of course, the credibility of many of these taxes that perhaps in 2022 they thought were not creditable and applying the notice would now be creditable uh, and figuring out, of course, if they wanna take that benefit they've got to do that for corporate taxpayers whose returns have potentially not been filed in 2022. It's probably less of an issue. But for a lot of individuals, they may have already filed their return earlier this year. And they're now in a position of having to go back and potentially amend that they want to take the credit that they thought in 2022 would not be credible. But as a result of the notice is now a potentially good tax again, Another area of impact that we're seeing under the notice is also with respect to capital gains tax. So for non-resident companies that were subject to a non-resident capital gain tax on the disposition of stock, in many jurisdictions under the final regulations, um, those taxes potentially were not creditable because of the attribution requirement that Seth spoke about. And without the attribution rules, it's now possible, again, under the notice to be able to credit some of these taxes. And some of the issues around the capital gains tax, of course, is that in certain jurisdictions, the tax that's imposed on this disposition is a part of their net income tax. And in other instances, it's a withholding tax mechanism to collect the capital gains tax. And so they're analyzing the credibility either by applying the notice, and as Seth indicated, if it's a net income tax that's a part of the same levy that you impose on non-residents, for example, that have taxable presence within a jurisdiction, then you're looking at the pre-2022 final regs uh, to determine the credibility of those taxes. But if it's a withholding tax, you're not going all the way back to the pre-2022 regulations. You're applying the new standard But without the problematic attribution rules, um, and even then, I think people are taking a closer look at analyzing the the credibility of these taxes in light of just how much time everybody spent in 2022 in going back and and evaluating new rules that they're not comfortable perhaps that the positions they may have taken wholly pre-2022 were as robust. And so we are spending and taxpayers are spending a bit more time in this area I think the other item that taxpayers are struggling with, and it might be more with respect to individuals potentially, are consistency requirements. So for many partnerships, for example, that were investment partnerships or that are investment partnerships, they might have disposed of some of their foreign interests throughout 2022. And as I had indicated, to the extent they were paying non-resident capital gains tax with respect to those dispositions, they may have not been creditable under the 2022 regulations. And they may have actually issued K-1 statements with footnotes where they were trying to be helpful to their partners about highlighting determinations as to which of the foreign taxes would be creditable or might not be creditable. And in light of the notice again, a lot of partners potentially are considering whether they would want to take a position that would allow a credit for these taxes. But that might be inconsistent potentially with K-1s that they've already received. And so there are issues around whether the partnership should be filing an amended K-1 or some other kind of statement to the partner. And in the absence of that amended K-1 or other statement, whether the partner that's taking a position that the tax is now creditable, whether they'll be inconsistent with the partnership reporting statements, and that becomes potentially problematic if you're moving into compliance, that they're taking positions somewhat inconsistent with the partnership reporting that they would need to flag. And then similarly, if the individual had received or if the partner had received and made determinations of foreign tax creditability directly outside of the partnership, I think issues are also being raised about consistency. You know, If they follow what the partnership has reported, but if they're also paying direct taxes, Do they need to be consistent in their treatment with respect to this notice and how that plays out. I think the other area that we are getting questions about and that taxpayers are probably paying more attention to is, as Seth and Kristen had indicated, when the final regulations or even the proposed regulations in 2020 came out, there were not necessarily a whole lot of comments that came in with respect to the regulations. And when they were finalized without much change, I think a lot of taxpayers were caught clearly off guard by what had happened. And I think clearly in the notice, there is a signal that Treasury is open to taking on board issues that taxpayers have encountered in interpreting these regulations. And then also recommendations potentially on how to solve for them. And I think a lot of taxpayers are probably paying more attention to and have more of an interest in actually lodging comments with Treasury in order to get whatever package of new regulations that Treasury is considering to be modified or, or moderated in some fashion.
0: Thank, thanks. <laughs> There's a lot there. Let's talk a little bit about some specific taxes. I recall that the italian irap was perhaps problematic under the final regs how do we to analyze that after the notice
3: yeah that one is an interesting uh, question gary because before the final regulations were released i think people had questioned whether the irap was credible under the pre-2022 regulations, and in part, that was informed by the U.S.-Italy tax treaty. So under the U.S.-Italy tax treaty, the Treasury Department or uh, negotiated in that agreement is a statement that the Italian ERAP would be partly creditable, and if you look at the technical explanation to that treaty, I think there is a view that the erap generally would not have been considered a net income tax that would have been you know a predominant character which uh, under the old standard a net income tax but nonetheless treasury agreed to cover a part of the erap and through the technical explanation there is a formula for how you compute what portion of the erap would be creditable under the treaty of course, implicit in that is that they don't otherwise think that the ERAP would have been credible, but for what they did in the treaty. And so I think taxpayers who are taking note of this notice and thinking about their pre-2022 position, they, I don't think they're fully comfortable that all of the ERAP, for example, is creditable because there's an inference, at least in the treaty, that not all of it would have been credible. And in fact, maybe none of it would have been credible in the absence of the treaty applying. And sort of on a related note with respect to the treaty, under the 2022 final regulations, there was a coordination rule with respect to treaties that seemed to make it pretty clear that Treasury's view of the treaty application is that where the treaty applies, because Treasury or the US has negotiated with a foreign treaty partner that they would agree in the relief from double tax provision to treat a foreign tax as an income tax for purposes of potentially crediting those taxes, that Treasury and and IRS would continue to respect the treaty determination. And it went on to then say that in the cases essentially where a US resident, so a citizen or a US resident company, is paying that tax directly, and that tax is covered by an income tax treaty as an income tax, then they would be able to take a position, of course, that the treaty continues to apply and the taxes would be creditable, notwithstanding anything in the 2022 final regulations. But the treaty coordination rule also made it clear that to the extent the tax itself is imposed on, say, a CFC, or a company that is resident within the jurisdiction, and in that case where the taxpayer might be trying to claim a credit under 960, that that treatment of the foreign tax is not covered by the income tax treaty. They didn't answer any of the ambiguity around whether the taxes that are paid, for example, by a CFC directly in their residence jurisdiction continue to be covered or not by income tax treaties. When they issued the notice, they sort of just put you all the way back to the position, at least in the 901 context, where you were before the final regulations. And so I think there is a bit of ambiguity that even for taxpayers that might rely on an income tax treaty, for example, to credit a part of the ERAP, if that ERAP tax is paid by a CFC, it is still a little unclear or uncertain what Treasury's position is with respect to whether a U.S. shareholder of the CFC could take a credit for a portion of that ERAP tax.
0: We haven't yet addressed the elephant in the room here. What does this notice mean for Brazilian income taxes?
3: I think in terms of what the notice means for a bunch of taxpayers is that clearly before the 2022 final regulations, I don't think that there were a lot of taxpayers or advisors who were potentially concerned about the credibility of the resident corporate income taxes, for example, in Brazil. And throughout the past few decades, I think we've also seen litigation in the United States around certain types of Brazilian taxes that may have been focused more not on whether the tax is a net income tax or whether it is an in lieu of tax, but the issues there were about whether you know the taxpayer paid it as a compulsory payment or whether it was non-compulsory. And there may have been issues with respect to who is the technical taxpayer. But implicit, I think, in the litigation is that no one questioned the underlying creditability of the Brazilian taxes. And I think a lot of taxpayers are probably going to take consistent positions with where they were in 2021 with respect to Brazil. I I think that is is part of, of the direction of travel, I guess, in light of the notice.
0: The notice specifically calls out the treatment of digital services taxes or DSTs. Most people view DSTs as the motivating force behind the changes to the regs in 2022. Are all DSTs still non-creditable under the notice?
3: I think as Seth had indicated, when they issued the notice, they largely put you back in the position that you were in for a net income tax pre-2022 final tax credit regulations, with the exception of some modest changes, minor changes, to the non-confiscatory rule, which kind of makes it clear that if you're dealing with a gross income or gross receipts tax, those types of taxes, you know, with the exception of it being imposed largely on investment income or wages, would not be good net income taxes. And so a DST, at least under the notice, I think they make a fairly clear statement that most digital services taxes, because they are on gross income or gross receipts, would not meet the 901 standard, even pre-2022 foreign tax credit regulations or under the notice baseline. But they left open the possibility that a DST and similar taxes to a DST could potentially be considered a good in lieu of tax. And in the notice, they focus a lot on issues around non-duplication. And so many DSTs will not satisfy the 903 regulations because they may be duplicative of other net income taxes that a foreign jurisdiction is imposing. And so they won't be wholly in lieu of or in substitution for the net income taxes. But that's a general statement. And I think where taxpayers are is looking more specifically at the type of DST they're paying and trying to figure out whether under the new 903 standards, again, without the attribution requirement, whether they could get comfortable that their DSTs or similar measures would satisfy at least the 903 requirements to potentially be credible.
0: Thanks, Quinn. I think it's fair to say that the timing and contents of this notice surprised us all. Seth, why do we think they provided this relief now and why is a notice rather than some other mechanism?
1: I don't know that we have a ton of insight there, to be honest, Gary, but I mean, I think we can observe a couple things. They did a technical correction already. They've proposed new changes to these regs already in the past year plus since they were adopted. And the drumbeat of concerns kept coming. And I think they felt like they hadn't quite Gotten there, they 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 were hearing these concerns. I think they were coming to recognize that the concerns had validity, and they didn't feel like they had the solution. So there was a, a, a an issue there for them. And Quinn has already alluded to some of the timing concerns. Returns were being filed, especially in the context of individuals. You know, you see a lot more returns filed before the extended due date. I think a significant number of the concerns that they were feeling sympathetic to involved individuals. So I think you know they didn't wanna keep playing whack-a-mole and just responding to the latest complaint that they heard. They wanted to take the time to, to deal with this in a systemic way. And they didn't feel like they had that up their sleeves at this time. They've already said that people can effectively go back to 1-1-2022 and recreate old law and if they were going to do that they didn't want to make that even more retroactive so once they knew they wanted to go back there was some imperative to act quickly and if they didn't know exactly what they want the law to be going forward they couldn't act through anything much more than a notice suspending so i think that's broadly speaking how we got here
0: So when I learned about the notice, I immediately thought this could be another 987 reg situation where the regs are finalized but then perpetually delayed. Seth, is that a possibility here?
1: I don't know. I I, I think probably not. I went the same place that you did, certainly. We've already heard, in a sense... Suggesting what you said, we've already heard public statements from government officials on panels. It's not in the IRB or certainly not the Federal Register, but we have heard public statements that they are looking to extend the notice by another year to to twelve thirty one twenty four instead of just twelve thirty one twenty three, and that's you know I think pretty important news and take some of the pressure off. We waited until now to drop that nugget on you people. I hope you were listening. But that being said, they have also told us that they expect to do guidance that coordinates Pillar 2 taxes and the US FTC rules, so they have to do something. And also, as core to as many taxpayers as 987 might be, I would suggest the foreign tax credit regime is even more core to more taxpayers. And so leaving us in a limbo-like state for a long time is probably not something that they're excited to do. So while we seem likely to get at least one extension, I don't know that I'd be shocked if we got a further extension beyond that. I'm not sure I would expect the multiple, multiple years of extension that we have seen with 987.
0: Seth, I'm going to ask you to look deep into that crystal ball of yours with the obvious caveat that if you really could see the future, you'd be undoubtedly sipping margaritas on your own private island today, rather than talking to us about an IRS notice. But where do you think this train is going? Is it possible that Treasury and the IRS decide to go back to the drawing board, maybe give up on the full rework of the regs and lieu of a more surgical targeting of DSTs?
1: Well, so one point to bear in mind is there's still a lot of uncertainty about Pillar 1 at the OECD. And if we do get a Pillar 1 resolution, that's a big F, but if we do get a Pillar 1 resolution, we would not expect there to be a lot of DSTs that we have to be addressing. So, you know, that's a watch this space kind of issue. Maybe DSTs get dealt with another way. The other thing I would say is putting aside DSTs and targeting novel extraterritorial taxes, as the preamble to the regs suggested. There was definitely a philosophical change between the old regulations and the very subjective predominant character test and the new regulations which attempted to be more prescriptive and um, require a more mechanical approach to analyzing a foreign tax regime to determine whether it was creditable. I have my own views as to which of those approaches is preferable, but I'm not in the government, and I don't think that particular aspect of the change in law that the 2022 regulations represented is something the government is fully on board giving up on. I think they recognize that they have to think about it, and so they might change their mind. They might go back closer to old law, but I am pretty confident they have not in their minds committed to doing that. They might think there is some other way to be more mechanical, more, quote-unquote, objective to achieve some of the goals that they set out for in these 2022 final regulations. I have my doubts as to whether you can achieve mechanical while still not raising that problem I alluded to at the beginning of needing to know every detail of the foreign law. I don't know if you can really square that circle. But I think they're going to try and, you know, they might succeed. The fact that I don't know how to do it doesn't mean it can't be done.
2: So thank you, Seth and Quinn, for joining us today to discuss the relief provided in Notice 2023-55. As you both explained, the temporary relief provided is certainly helpful, especially as we approach tax return filing deadlines in the coming months. That being said, it still remains to be seen when the next round of guidance will be released, how comprehensive that guidance will be and what it will all mean for companies that will be subject to Pillar 2 top-up taxes in the future. So, as always, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care.